One quick note on the content. This episode contains a mention of a racial slur. Here's the episode. Close your eyes. What do you see when you picture Mardi Gras? Costumes, brass bands, beads, beer, lots of beer. What you're probably not picturing, though, are the police. They're everywhere, standing on every corner, up on horseback trailing each parade, in patrol cars at every intersection. The New Orleans Police Department spends weeks preparing for the biggest free show on earth. It's a point of pride for the NOPD that they're the only ones who know how to handle Mardi Gras. It's part of their identity, a time of year they feel really good about what they do, and when many citizens appreciate their presence, maybe more than usual. But Mardi Gras Day 1979? There was something really strange going on. The police weren't out protecting the city. They were the ones causing a ruckus. And then we got a call on, on our radio. You know, we had these, these uh, walkie-talkies. You know, that there's some action at the mayor's house on Harrison Avenue. And we went out uh, to Harrison Avenue. We see this maybe about 50 or 60 police officers. They're in street clothes, and they're marching in front of the mayor's house, and they're egging, they're egging the mayor's house. <laughs> the house of newly elected mayor Dutch Morial, the first black mayor of New Orleans. These are grown men. They weren't masked. They weren't trying to hide. They weren't trying to hide who they were. They were brazenly and openly protesting and, and expressing their discontent. I said, are you nuts? I said, this is not going to help your cause. This is not going to help your cause at all. And, and they said, well, you know, this is how we feel about the mayor. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Sticky Wicket, Louisiana politics versus the press. We're taking on four historic clashes between Louisiana politicians and the media, one at a time. Because these relationships have always been love-hate in the Pelican State. I'm your host, Lane Kaplan-Levinson. Today, Dutch Morial and the police strike of 1979. To understand how things got to this boiling point where the police are egging the mayor's house, let's talk about Dutch Morial and his path to power. He was a 7th Ward Creole with the typical look of a 7th Ward Creole, I would say. This is Charlene Senegal de Queer, a history professor at Xavier University. He was extremely fair-skinned. He had really nice, cold, dark, curly black hair. And for uh, most appearances, he actually could pass for a white person if he chose to do that. But that's not something that he chose to do. Ernest Nathan Morial was born in 1929. No one could really tell me why or how he got the nickname Dutch, but everybody called him that his whole life, all the way through high school at McDonough 35 and then Xavier University, where he graduated in 1951. A few years later, he meets his wife Sybil at a book club. By the way, we're not going to hear from Dutch because he died in 1989. Here's Sybil. We didn't do much talking about the book we had selected. We talked about the Brown, the Supreme Court decision. We were captivated with each other. 
They married, and Dutch started his long career of breaking records. He became the first African-American to graduate from LSU Law School, then the first African-American to become a Louisiana legislator since the Reconstruction era, then the state's first black juvenile court judge, and then the first black judge elected to the Louisiana Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. With that momentum, at 49 years old, he announces to Sybil, and by that point their five children, that he's running for mayor. I knew it would present problems for my family and our lifestyle and so forth. But he had a mission. I didn't want to deprive him of that, and I didn't want to deprive me and my family and my people from his abilities, you know, and his drive and his vision. Dutch was not shy about his mission, fighting racial discrimination. As a lawyer, he focused on repealing segregation laws and continued the fight as a legislator and judge. Campaigning in 1978, he was especially outspoken about police reform. Uh, When my husband was practicing law, many of his clients had been handled roughly by the police. It was a fact of life. In 1975, three people were murdered by off-duty New Orleans police officers. A year later, a black man named Wayne Smith got in an argument with a white man during a Mardi Gras parade. The cops intervened, knocked Smith unconscious, and escorted the white man away. Smith later died in police custody. The officer was not indicted. Protesters carried signs that read, the police killed Wayne Smith. Dutch had had his own personal altercation with the police back when he was a state rep. In an interview, he described standing outside his house when a patrol car pulled up. And the police officer said from the car, uh, get off the sidewalk. And I said, officer, I live here. This is my home. He said, well, you can't talk on the sidewalk. I said, officer, I live here. This is my home. He said, from the car, you're under arrest for loitering. Dutch showed his legislator card, but the cop disregarded it and took him to central lockup. This sadly did not surprise Dutch or Sybil. She says they never felt the police were there to protect them. And we had to tell our children, if you ever get in a situation with the police, be polite. But first of all, don't get in a situation with the police. But if for, for some reason they think you have done wrong, don't answer back. But just to have to tell them that, that the people who are supposed to protect you, they, they may not. The city was 50% black, but black police officers were rare. Dutch was determined to reform the NOPD, in part by recruiting more African Americans. It was a campaign promise. Then, who does he end up with in the final runoff for mayor? Former NOPD chief Joe DeRosa. With 95% of the black vote and just 20% of the white vote, Dutch won. We hope that what we have done during the course of the campaign is a forerunner to the quality of government which we will provide for the next four years. He made history by a margin of just 6,000 votes. And I'd like to say that it was because we were smarter and better funded. That would be only about half right. David Marcello served as Dutch's chief executive counsel. I think the key element was demographics. Voter registration in the African-American community had gone up from perhaps 42 to 44 or 46 percent. I've forgotten the numbers now, but it was enough, I think, to make the difference. I remember the night of the election when Dutch won, 
This is Norman Robinson, a retired news anchor who covered Dutch for WWL-TV. There was a, a carload of white politicians who drove down the street, and they saw me crossing Canal Street, and they said, who won the election? And I said, Dutch Moriel they, uh, won. And they said, Dutch Moriel? I said, yeah. <laughs> it was shocking. When Dutch Morial walked into the mayor's office, he also walked into a $40 million budget deficit left over from Moon Landrieu's administration. He immediately needed to make cuts. During the campaign, along with his sharp criticism of the NOPD, he also promised them a raise. When he became mayor, he made good on that promise. But to do that, he cut back on sick days and other benefits. That didn't help. And you want police officers, you want, you want to make the working conditions the best you can give them. You want them as happy as they can be. Vincent Bruno was president of the Police Association of New Orleans, PANO, when Dutch was elected in 1978. Let me just say here that PANO was and is not a union. It was a group of officers who met and discussed affairs concerning the department, but they had no bargaining power with the city. So keep that in mind. Bruno, and safe to say most police, did not vote for Morial. He says after Dutch cut benefits, he made matters even worse with his pick for new police chief. Chief Parsons. Jim Parsons was recruited from Birmingham, Alabama. The NOPD did not want to be bossed around by someone from out of town. Uh, there was some tension, uh, but not like it was when he came. It like tripled and quadrupled. He wasn't from here. But Parsons had a reputation for improving race relations between police and citizens. When he showed up to New Orleans, he held town hall meetings in black neighborhoods like the Treme and the Desire Housing Development. And he criticized the NOPD in these meetings, saying they were totally out of touch. The officers didn't want to hear any of it. He had no respect for us at all. It just got to a level where like, the men and women just had enough. On February 8th, 1979, Less than a year after Dutch Morial became mayor, the NOPD staged its first ever walkout. Police don't walk off. We, that's not in our, our makeup, you know? I mean, we don't do that, <laughs> you know? But they did. All but 11 of 1,400 of them. You have everybody go out on strike except for 11 police officers out of roughly 1,500. Something's wrong. They wanted a union. They wanted bargaining power. WWL's Norman Robinson. They wanted the ability to demand wage increases, better working conditions, better health care, overtime. They wanted control over their existence, basically. Police organizing was happening around the country. New York got its first union in 1962. Chicago was also fighting for a union at the same time as New Orleans. They got it in 1980. Bargaining power for police sounds reasonable, right? Most of New Orleans thought so, 
when the first strike happens on February 8th, the media is kind of, it seems like they're somewhat siding with the police officers that, yeah, you know, there needs to be restoration of sick leave benefits or there needs to be more pay for holidays. So everybody's kind of backing them. When the first walkout occurred a week ago Friday, 67% of the citizenry was behind the police action. Dutch spends 30 straight hours negotiating with Vincent Bruno and the local Teamster rep, Mitch Ledet. He sees they're the ones that have the public support. So he concedes and offers them a bargaining agreement. And all the police had to do at this time was just sign that agreement, and they would have had a union. No agreement is officially signed, but the police go back to work, ending the 30-hour strike. In the meantime, Pano looks over Dutch's offer and decides, no. They want more. So they turned it down. And threatened to strike again, this time for even longer. Then, in a surprise move, they replaced their local Teamsters rep, Mitch Ledet, who actually had a good relationship with Dutch, with someone, believe it or not, from out of town. A Teamster leader from Detroit who came down with all the accoutrements of a Detroit Teamster leader. Named Joe Valenti. He had the open, high-collar shirt with all his chest hair poking out, and he had all of the nice, expensive gold necklaces, and he had the big rings on, and he talked with the Eastern dialect that, you know, the Marlon Brando from the waterfront. You think you're God Almighty, but you know what you are? Come on! You're a cheap, lousy, dirty, stinking mug! And that turned the people off. Joe Valenti comes in hot with his demands and swears he won't back down. But Dutch also won't budge. And now he's furious. Dutch had this feisty reputation. It was very challenging because you never knew which side of the bed he was going to get up on. He did make a lot of people uncomfortable because he would say things that shocked the white community. He would say things like, why does the elite white community react to me this way? Is it because I'm a nigger? The media did not know what to do with him. Charlene Senegal de Queer. A lot of people actually uh, thought that he was uppity. Some people thought that he was a little Napoleon. Um, so he had all of these names. It's so rare to hear that a male politician needed to soften up, right? Usually a male politician is celebrated for their strong, aggressive nature. They wanted him to not be the angry black male. If it was a Caucasian man or a white man who came in with that exact same identity, it would not be a problem at all. He would be like, oh, he's strong, he's great. But for a black man to come in at the time that he did, and we were still struggling with the civil rights movement, for him to come in and to display the exact same identity that a white person would have done, I mean, he just couldn't get away with it because he was African-American. The mainstream media didn't want to talk about whether the NOPD's actions were racially motivated. Norman Robinson didn't go there in his reporting, but he had his opinions. They saw him as, as a target. They thought they had the right guy and the right time to actually have some success in uh, establishing a union within the NOPD. And so, to raise the stakes, the new Teamster leader, Joe Valenti, comes up with the ultimate threat. He insisted that they strike during Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras, as in Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is like the Holy Grail. 
You don't mess with Mardi Gras. You see the signs when you're driving the Texas, don't mess with Texas? Well, in, in New Orleans, is you don't mess with Mardi Gras. It is unfortunate that the Teamsters Union decided to use the carnival season, a great historic family activity for our citizens, as the time to cause our police officers to turn their backs on their sworn duties and deny our citizens the enjoyment of the traditional Mardi Gras celebration. Suddenly, the fate of Mardi Gras 1979 rested on Dutch Morial's shoulders. And remember, up to this point, most of the public supported the NOPD. But now, taking the city's most precious tradition hostage? Y'all are now threatening Mardi Gras. We supported you guys before. You got what you asked for. And now you're asking for more? You're asking for too much. The police formed a picket line outside their headquarters, wearing big black and white signs around their necks that read ON STRIKE in large, bold-faced letters. With less than a dozen officers on duty, Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards was forced to bring in the National Guard. They were essentially scabs. And that made national news. The New York Times, the Washington Post. Suddenly, Norman Robinson was covering the strike 24-7. The mayor would hold his news conference. The police would hold their news conferences. And some of the news coverage would become very testy. Nerves were being frayed because we had spent so many hours on the streets covering this stuff. And and it was like a never-ending story that went on and on and on. And it was all really confusing. These negotiations were about the nuances of labor law, jargon like collective bargaining units, and other minute details that the police and the mayor's office were arguing over that I'm not even going to try to explain to you. It was tough for the press to relay what was going on to the public because they could hardly make sense of it themselves, which made Dutch crazy. I can recall one live shot with the mayor. He was trying to explain what is a bargaining unit to some of the anchors on the air, and they didn't understand. So he came over and he grabbed my microphone. Would you step on this side, man? We'll handle it. Good thing we minded to you people. So I said, Mr. Mayor, you have to have the IFB, you know, the, the thing that you put in your ear so you can hear the producer talking and you can hear the sound that's taking place over the air. So I gave him my IFB, and he at one point he said, this is, this is so exasperating. This is exasperating. Okay, you said tonight that okay. it's behind my shoulders. So you did not want ranking officers to be in the union. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that, dear. No, don't confuse you. Don't confuse your listeners. Listen carefully to what I'm well, about Well, I am very say. confused because you're not thinking and you're not following. I'm trying to think. All right. And that's why I guess we have to keep asking and asking and asking. Well, we want you to keep repeating and repeating and repeating. (laughs) Repeat it and repeat it and repeat it accurately. Okay. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I guess you know now we're eternally linked by having shared the same conversation. The mayor found the local reporters completely incompetent by his standards. And as you can hear, he'd spar with them right on live television. 
Meanwhile, the captains of all the big Mardi Gras crews are realizing the negotiations are going nowhere and they're running out of time. With their parades just days away, they decide if anyone's going to make the call about Mardi Gras, it's going to be them. You know, you had Rex and you had the Zulu crews. Charlene. You had all of these crews that are going to come together and they're going to say, you know what? You guys, you police officers, you're holding Mardi Gras hostage. Well, guess what? You don't even have to hold Mardi Gras hostage. We're going to go ahead and cancel it. Now what you going to do? Dutch and his team meet with the crew captains at the Howard Johnson's hotel and make the call to cancel all the big parades. By the end of that meeting, the crews are with Dutch and place total blame on the NOPD. Yesterday, only 17% of our polling sample was supporting the police union strike. As the strike began its third... And that was the beginning of the end for the New Orleans Police Department. The talk at the schools was, your daddy canceled Mardi Gras. Even though most of the city, including the elite Mardi Gras crews, were surprisingly behind the mayor at this point, things still got ugly for Dutch and his family. Sybil Morial says their kids were taunted and worse. There was a threat at the school that they were going to bomb the middle hall. So it was, it was a very difficult time for us. After multiple threats, the National Guard parked an unmarked car in the Morial's backyard and surveilled the house day and night. Meanwhile, the mayor's not only watching his kids' school get bomb threats, he's also watching a large portion of his annual revenue go up in flames. The NOPD knew they were hitting the mayor where it hurt. Tourists would hear about the strike and the canceled parades and immediately canceled their hotel reservations. Charlene says the NOPD were actually encouraging people to stay home by stoking fear. Saying, y'all need to go out, citizens, y'all need to go out and get your guns, get your ammunition and protect yourself because we're not going to be here to protect you. So they're putting fear um, in people's, you know, heads. It's just a lot. It's a lot. The whole thing was coming to a head. Everybody was frustrated. It's Lundi Gras, and Norman Robinson is waiting to go live with the most recent announcement from Pano when all of a sudden a fight breaks out between WWL's Bill Elder and another journalist. Uh, it was the 10 o'clock newscast, I recall. So there was a newspaper photographer sitting in front of our monitor, and Bill said, move away from the monitor. <laughs> <laughs> the newspaper photographer says, I have just as much right to be here as you. And Bill says, move away from the damn monitor. I'm not going to tell you again. And I'm, I'm hearing the countdown in my ear. You know, 30 seconds, 20 seconds, move away from the monitor. 15 seconds, get away from the damn monitor. 10 seconds. Damn it! I told you to get away from the monitor! <laughs> get out! And they take us live, and there is this melee taking place. Get off my television set. Can I, can I have my television set, huh? We're all live right now. Hey, 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 Bill. 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 Come on, Bill. I asked you about ten times to move it. There was a brief negotiating session today in an effort to end the 11-day-old strike by New Orleans policemen. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're exhausted. This is what it's come to. Norman Robinson reports right now. Mardi Gras Day finally arrives. Not a single parade rolls down St. Charles. 
But as anyone who lives in New Orleans knows, that doesn't mean there's no party. Small DIY parades still rolled down the streets in the Marigny in the French Quarter. People still costumed and raged all day long. Charlene says some police were out in the streets too, rioting. They're slashing tires of police cars. They're setting their uniforms on fire. They're wearing shirts that say, take this job and shove it. I mean, (laughs) they're just acting crazy. This is all happening in front of City Hall, where Norman Robinson was until he got that call to head to the mayor's house. And we went out uh, to Harrison Avenue. We see this, there were maybe about 50 or, or 60 police officers. They're in street clothes, and they're marching in front of the mayor's house. And they kept making the round on the block. Sybil Morial was inside the house. They kept going around and around and throwing eggs and rotten tomatoes and onions. And we could hear them laughing and talking loud. You know, this was like a bunch of kids. They were policemen, adult men. The strike officially ended in March, shortly after Ash Wednesday. Mardi Gras had been the NOPD's bargaining tool, and they thought Dutch would have caved under pressure. But with most of the city behind him, he held firm. By that point, officers were struggling after a month with no pay. So they defeatedly put on their uniforms and went back to work. And indeed, the entire city will breathe a sigh of relief tonight as the 16-day-old walkout by New Orleans policemen has finally ended. Norman Robinson, Channel 4, Eyewitness News. He outfoxed them is what he did. He outfoxed them. He won. He ultimately won. Norman says this win solidified Dutch's reputation not only as feisty, but... As a tough cookie that he was somebody not to really mess with. When Dutch ran for a second term, he got even less of the white vote than the first time. But he still won. He started minority hiring quotas for city jobs, and the number of black employees rose from 40 to 53 percent. By the end of his second term, black officers made up one-third of the police force. But his relationship with his police department never improved. In an interview a few years after he left office, Dutch asserted why he believed the NOPD decided to strike for the first time when they did. He said, plain and simple, it was the effort to test the will of the first black mayor. Today, the NOPD still doesn't have a union. And it's not likely that they will ever have a union. They've often struggled to recruit and retain officers. Norman Robinson says a lot of this can be traced back to the failure of that strike. I don't think they ever recovered. I really don't. I I see this shroud of low morale still hanging over the, uh, the police department. Thinking about this story, I keep coming back to something Sybil said. We talked about how relations between communities of color and police enforcement have not improved. Today, there's the Black Lives Matter movement and the Blue Lives Matter movement, two countering groups that openly oppose each other. It's not surprising that Sybil told me she still has to have the same conversations she had with her children about the police with their children. 
you know, my grandchildren, especially the boys. This is life, and this is what you need to keep in mind. You know, just don't be aggressive and call us and we'll come. Sticky Wicket is a production of WRKF Baton Rouge and WWNO New Orleans Public Radio. This series is part of the Democracy in the Informed Citizen Initiative, a project of the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, which seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support and the Federation of the State Humanities Councils and Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Sticky Wicket is also in partnership with La Politics, Xavier University of Louisiana, and Louisiana State University. Special thanks to WWL News for providing much of the footage you heard in today's episode. Our editor is Eve Tro, our producer is Mara Laser, our composer is Peter J. Bowling, our graphic designer is Riley Tehan, and our illustrator is Jasper Means. You can listen to Sticky Wicket for free by finding the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please be sure to rate and review the show. Also, find us on Instagram at Sticky Wicket Pod. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and this has been a real Sticky Wicket. Sticky Wicket.